we want to do what I did with the president's father in the tsunami area. We want to be a place where people can know their money will be well spent, where we will ensure the ongoing integrity of the process. And we want to stay with this over the long run. My job with the U.N. basically is not at all in conflict with this because I'm sort of the outside guy. My job is to work with the donor nations, the international agencies, the business people uh, around the world to try to get them to invest there, the non-governmental organizations, the Haitian diaspora community. I, I'm just grateful that President Bush wants to help, and I've already figured out how I can get him to do some things that he didn't sign on for. I know a lot of people want to send blankets or water. Just send your cash. One of the things that uh, President I'll do is to make sure your money is spent wisely. It's estimated that somewhere between 10 and 14 billion was sent towards that effort. And Bill and the former, I think it is prime minister or a former prime minister of Haiti, refuses to account for any of that money. And the people of Haiti, you know, are rioting in the streets. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Great America Show. We are going to be chatting with Charles Ortel a little bit later about the Clinton Foundation and the crookedness of it. But first, as always, the one and only, Graham, can I borrow your hair pills Dunlop? How's it going, buddy? <laughs> That's not very nice. I know. Well, you have them too, so why don't you eat and try them? I keep forgetting to grab yeah, them. We'll grab them. I'll try them for you. Hopefully Kyle has a experiment. We'll see. If, oh, yeah, you're running away too, eh? You're getting catching up to me. With the receiver? Yeah. Yeah. The receiver. That's the worst. So I figured I'd give all listeners a little background and a, and a good welcome to all our new listeners. Thanks for coming on board. Skip ahead to the interview if you want. Yeah, you can skip ahead to the interview. We usually do a little intro where we talk about listener feedback and, and synchronicities and we share stories and stuff like that. Now uh, we just ramble on somewhat lazily. But there's a timestamp in the show notes where the interview starts. If you want to just jump right ahead to Charles Charles Ortel, pretty fascinating chat. It's like an hour and a half. He stays with us. It's pretty cool. All about charities and all that, and the corruption and the legalities of it all, and just how illegal. Yeah, more like the illegalities. Ill- illegalities. Illegalities. <clears throat> so also, we we thought we'd mention uh, we had. Corbett on James Corbett a little while ago and uh, we don't have any previous episodes you know about the Clintons but I'll put a link in the show notes for his I think he's got a meet the Clintons episode yeah it's like episode 100 and something which probably fit right in it's pretty thorough yeah Yeah, he does a great job and there's some documentaries there's Clinton Cash the Mina connection is the one I watched yeah and we talk about the no agenda show in here as well so I'll put a link to that in the show notes all that good shit. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we want to advertise everybody else, but it's, uh, they're collaborators. We yeah. yeah. And we don't mind spouting the best podcast in the universe from time to time. Yeah. And we don't, uh, just for all the new people as well, we don't have any ads here. No portals, no sponsorships. It's fully listener supported. That's right. So head on, i get that out of the way right now. Head on over to grandamerica.ch slash support. 
and help us uh, keep trudging forward and help us continue to provide this uh, sort of content without having to worry about advertisers or sponsors or anyone else. We can do whatever the fuck you guys want us to do. Yeah, and the whole back catalog is free as well. Uh, 185 episodes. What else was I going to say about that? Hmm. So head on over to gregamerica.ca slash support. Anything from a buck a month to 30 bucks a month, you can sign up there for a monthly. Uh, the most popular is the five five fifty five option. That's a, about a buck a show, which I don't think is too much to ask for. Uh... No, not at all. I mean, we do have fixed expenses here, right? And they're more than we thought. I mean, we did try and do it professionally here, at least somewhat. Not necessarily our behavior, but our equipment anyways. Do <laughs> that. Pretty profesh. Yeah. yeah. Or send a one-time donation. Uh, if you want a t-shirt, 20 or $25 or more. Uh, text, email first. Email us your size first because we're running down on our stock. And we're not reordering because we're switching everything over to Redbubble. Yeah. Which there is a link for. But yeah. If you want a t-shirt, get it through us for now. If we have your size. And if you want anything else, like a Grand America throw pillow. Head over to grandmerica.ca slash swag. And send a pic of your pillow fight? Sure. <laughs> or you can get, I got you the notebook. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. So, in two weeks. Right on. So, uh, yeah, what do you want to hear about? We got some listener feedback, lots of emails and, and uh, some stories. Synchros? Uh, kind of mini synchro, yeah. But actually, speaking of our professionalism and our Bob and Doug-like style, I could... Yeah, let's play some feedback in a mini, mini synchro and mini. Mini synchro? Um, uh, literally a mini synchro and mini Apollos. I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Aaron is skeptical about everyone. And don't. All right. This is from uh, Mark, Mark and Minnie. Mark and Minnie. Hey, yeah. Mark and Minnie. He says, Graham and Darren, I have to say. Is that Gra- right, Martin Mindy? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say the Grimerica show is the best conspiracy show out there. Well, let me first say, this isn't, today's episode isn't a conspiracy, or it's not about conspiracies, that's for sure. Facts. Yeah, but we do like to touch on them. So he says, don't get me wrong, there are others out there that are great, but your program is a breath of fresh air in a world that seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. You consistently find interesting guests and present topics that might not get airplay elsewhere. Perhaps others have said this before, but I consider you two the Bob and Doug McKenzie of the Great White North Conspiracy Realm. (laughs) Bob and Doug McKenzie, nonstop. (laughs) Whenever I refresh my podcast player, I anxiously wait to see if another show has been posted so I can laugh my ass off during your pre-interview banter. Keep up the great work and know that a donation is heading your way very soon. As for my synchros, I've been having a lot lately, but but I have not been jotting them all down. With that being said, here are two. You paying attention there, buddy? Yeah. Before typing up this email this evening, I looked down at the two laundry baskets full of clothes that needed to be folded, and I said to my wife, once again, the never-ending story, more clothes to fold. My wife responded, well, today is the 37th anniversary of the never-ending story. 
Sure enough, just throw out some cliche and it comes back to haunt you with a Google Doodle and a headline honoring the anniversary of a famous fantasy novel. My second synchro took place a couple days after the impressive Cliff High interview. Actually, you know what I'll do? I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. I downloaded the episode so I could ride around town in my van with my dog, Hatchet, to run some errands. We stopped at a local coffee shop to pick up a decaf before continuing on when I noticed a disheveled woman wearing a winter hat. A toque in Canada, perhaps. Yes. Sitting at one of the patio Isn't tables. Is a toque everywhere? No, it's just it's the Bob and Duck thing, too. <laughs> I won't do it. I sat at a nearby table as the woman continued with her quirky behavior. Actually, no, I missed the spot here. Sorry. She was sitting at one of the patio tables at the entrance of the shop. As I walked in, she mumbled something, seemingly directed at me, and continued to fiddle around with two disposable insulated cups. I went inside, made my purchase, and proceeded back outside with my dog. I sat at a nearby table as the woman continued with her quirky behavior. I watched as she took out two large tea bags and place one in each of the cups as if to offer an invisible friend a drink. She put a lid on one, took a sip, and set it on her table. She then stood up, grabbed the second full cup of tea, and for no apparent reason, chucked it on the ground near a tree. Just as she did so, a produce truck drove by with a logo splashed across the entire side panel that read, Crazy Fresh. (laughs) The timing couldn't have been more perfect. She then collected her things from the table, left her trash on the ground, and walked down the street in her own whacked-out merry way. Perhaps not the best synchro, but crazy things similar to the ones I've related to have been happening over and over again. Just thought I'd share in the synchro fun. Keep up the shows. And he's got the logo here is... Um, crazy Fresh. The kind eating a Crazy Fresh apple. I, uh, I should ask not a trip report. <laughs> it could be a trip sounds report. like a trip report yeah it does doesn't it it does actually it's got that ring but yeah. my sister's had a shitload of synchros happening to her as well and uh she's gonna write them down for me because there's about five oh, in a row good day good day good day <laughs> i call it her how's it going i'm bob mckenzie it's my brother doug how's it going hey we got okay two that's topics. I never watched it. Really? Yeah, you don't know then. That's pretty funny. I should watch some. Just watch the movie, at least. <laughs> There's a movie? Yeah. I thought it was like a sitcom. Or, well, was yeah, it, it was, but then it became, was yeah, it but then it became a movie, right? Strange huh. Brew. Huh. You'd like the... <laughs> when did this all happen? <laughs> Before you were born, maybe. I don't know. It was in the 80s, I think. Huh. So anyways, there you have it. We watch that. We'll watch that and Monty Python back to back. Yeah, we should. Yeah, just be a barrel of laughs. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I watch the old movies though, and I'm just. Yeah, I, I wonder how did I like that? Yeah. Movie? No, yeah. Monty Python's totally different. You'll never yeah. feel that way. Okay. But what's next? Well, I got. Uh, you gonna? You're not gonna rate those synchros? Those trip report synchros? Uh, seven. 
Well, I got I got an an interesting email. I'm not. I'm, I'm sure he was fucked up on mushrooms or something. Just too perfect. Yeah. Too poetic. Yeah. I've had that. I feel like deja vu almost when he was telling about the tea splash and stuff like that. Huh. And maybe it was really shroom tea. Yeah. Anyways, I wanted to throw this out here because I've had it for a while and I want to bring it up with listeners in case they want to contribute to this. But this is from uh, Julian. And he says, Hey, I hope you are well. Please forgive if this email is a bit swiffy, but I'm completely baked. I wonder if you might put a shout out for listeners to contact the show and recommend movies or books that they recommend pertaining to spiritual awakening. If you're interested in this idea, I will go first and recommend The Fountain, The Silent Flute, ASA Circle of Iron, and also The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Or we should just get a list going someplace like the best docs. That's what we're doing. Well, no, we're talking about doing it. No, because you have to... You have to get the have it on the website feedback from the listeners, though. Like, I just watched um, What the Bleep Do We Know. Oh, yeah, that, that know, is one. That's one of them right there's there. there's three of them? Three of them now? There's two What the Bleep Do We Know, and there's like a unofficial third one. Uh, yeah, I had the box set before, if the, that has the, all three. three. I know that had trilogy. two or three, I think. Yeah, it had two or three in there. There's also... So did you just watch that recently? Yeah. What'd you think? Yeah. What? I fell asleep. Oh. <laughs> I don't you're watch smoking a lot of the TV. wrong type. You're smoking the wrong strain. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, so now when I do, it's, it's usually <laughs> in the background or as soon as I like, you know, yeah. As soon as I put the laptop away or whatever, and then yeah, that's a, that was a good one though. I, I thought some of those people in there I want to have on the show still. Yeah. And so, well, one of the best documentaries I've seen in the last, last, last while was I Am. Okay, that's another one, yeah. And then there's the Zeitgeist trilogy. I could just go on and on and on, really. Is that a spiritual awakening, the Zeitgeist, though? Or is it more of a... What's an awakening? Matrix fucking awakening. Awakening and awakening. <laughs> no, it isn't. Sure it is. You ain't gonna wake up from the one if you don't wake up from the other. There is an overlap. I, I, I give you that for sure. <coughs> so I was thinking there's, there was one back there from Neil Donald Walsh, I think, but it was a, it was a doc, it was a movie made out of his book conversations with God. That was pretty cool. Not that, not in a religious way, but more in a spiritual way. And I would have to add the book, the four agreements from my list. It's from Mikhail Don Ruiz, and it's like this just simple read, but it's so profound. You know, we have an interview at 5 a.m. on Friday. Yep. And then the other thing, what else was I going to make? Oh, A New Earth from Eckhart Tolle. Eckhart Tolle is pretty. I got to prepare for that. Pretty profound. So that's my, that's my list added to it for now. Sure. Send so many listeners have one. Yeah, let's. Now we need idea. a jingle. He says, love the show. And now another edition of the Grime American Goodies by the people. I can't speed him up. Love the show, guys. And you guys make a great comedy act that transcends the show beyond mere paranormal podcasts. Mm. You make me laugh, too. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You're a meme. 
<laughs> I got my new meme generator. Check it out on Instagram. Yeah, I will. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just looking at some Sasquatch pics I'm going to put together. and Not like real Sasquatch, but... Huscular is now a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to hashtag that on my new... My new... Uh, Meme generator? No, my new uh, Instagram post that'll do. Oh, with there you Sasquatch. go. Sasquatch is pretty huscular too. There you go. You should get yourself a huscular shirt. Rock that shit. Uh, maybe I will. Yeah. Yeah. You got to change the font color though, because it doesn't look good. Yeah. You need a darker font so it goes on most colors. The yellow font just blends right in. Star- As you would know, since you ordered one with the wrong font color and you can't even yeah, read it. It was Star Warsy. Yeah, I'll get, uh, I'll talk to them. Map designed it for you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Same with the Grimerican ones. So, do you, so want, do you want a UFO quote right now? or um, Do you want to learn how to lucid dream? Is it real or a dream? What does that even mean? So sometimes it seems like listeners resonate with the lucid dreaming aspect, and you know I've been trying the lucidamine, right? Which is for, that you've been trying lucid dream for as long as I've known. <laughs> I'm not doing a very good job. But Still, I had actually I had a pretty whatever happened with the glasses. Ones that like the Remy's, they're you called, were waiting actually. for them to come in. You had like pre-ordered them. And no, I didn't order them actually. Oh. No, no, but that's not a bad idea. I'd like to try that. That would be a glass that that shines the red light. Mm-hmm. And so you just notice the light when you're dreaming, but it doesn't wake you up. So I've been going back and forth with some listeners because they've been giving me suggestions and we go back and forth and still nothing. <laughs> well, I not really now. I have better dreams now and they're, they're more, well, no, I shouldn't even say that sometimes they're more consistent. Probably. I think I had, a, I had moments of lucidity in the last while. Mm. It's always because lately those fucking kittens are always running around like fucking That's perfect. Maniacs. So it wakes you up and you go back to so bed, I you get, get up wake the, back it, to bed. It's always in the morning. So it has to be on the weekend because during the week, I'm just in a different state of mind. You know, I'm in a different place when I get up to wake up those cats and I'm worried about right. my interruption and I have to get to work in the morning and how I need to get to sleep and I need my sleep. And, you know, I'm not in the fucking state of mind. This, no, 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 but, but then this on is the interesting. Weekend, on the weekend, when I, I get up, I don't really care. I round up the cats, take them downstairs. And then, and you know what's funny is sometimes I'll even, if it's like 5 a.m. or 4 a.m., sometimes I'll have trouble getting back to sleep. I'll just go outside, I'll have a little toot, I'll go back in, go to sleep, I'll fall asleep. And that's when I'll start having moments of where I'm someplace and I'll know in the dream where I'm like, this isn't, this is a dream. I'm dreaming. Wow. And then what do you do? Nothing. I wow. Wake, <laughs> wake up. Trick. Wait, I, I either wake up or I, I don't know. I've never had a moment where I'm able to do anything or. You just, well, that's the first step is awareness. Yeah. So I, have I pulled ahead of you? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have, honestly, I was talking to, I was emailing Matt back and forth and I was saying that I don't practice the, the problem. I don't practice recording my dream well enough and then practicing being in a, like in reality all day long like am i in a dream am i in a reality to train yourself for becoming aware yeah, during I'm the not, dream you're never going to catch me doing that i remember when you're doing that it's annoying don't do that 
Okay. When you're like flicking off light switches all the time and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm checking if I'm dreaming. You remember me doing that in the yeah, office? I remember you doing it. Yeah. Have you just pinch yourself? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're trying to be aware of like, am I dreaming, right? Sometimes I've pinched myself. Set to see. Yeah. So, so Matt responded with some good advice. Let's hear it. He says, uh, okay, the only supplement type, uh, the only supplement type <laughs> I may take is called relax and sleep from the dollar store, which has chamomile and valerian, but I usually don't. Now, actually, the valerian root is in, in tea a lot as well. That's in the, like last night I had this lucid dreaming tea and it sort of helped. I had some pretty cool dreams, but I didn't really become aware in them. So it's a long for the ride. So he says, have you found an effective dosage for lucidamine yet? So here's how I use it. First, number one, first to scrap your lucid dreaming <laughs> protocols. Sounds backwards, but in using lucidamine, I've realized I'm only training normal waking skills and not advancing my LD skills. What seems to work best is to find a trigger for the subconscious, like having a one minute conversation about it with someone. Basically, set it and forget it early in the day. Too much dwelling on it weighs you down. Two, eat a small light snack before bed and place a glass of water and your dose on the bedside table. Allow yourself an initial four to five hours of sleep. Number four, set an alarm to wake you up. My ideal schedule is I go to bed around 11, 11.30 and awake by 4, 4.30. It's kind of what you're talking about. You want to have a good two to three hours for sleeping after this alarm, which then leads it to weekends because otherwise you'd be getting up for work. Well, you, you might not be, but I would be. Hey, <clears throat> you've been there as long as I have. <laughs> Number five, when you wake up, I prefer to take a quick piss. <laughs> you prefer to go out and have a quick hoot. I have a piss too. Take and you know what? When I get up in the middle of the night for a piss, I always sit down. Really? Yeah. I never do. Because I don't want to turn the light on. And I can't just go and shoot blind. My wife will fucking shoot me. <laughs> so it's just easier. I'd rather just sit down than deal with the light. Because then you're that. always like squinting and... Yeah. I got pretty good aim in the dark. And the lights fuck you up too. It's better just go sit in there. I got aim in the dark. Do your business. Uh, bring the black light into your bathroom. So he Actually, says... Actually, no, I'm not bringing a black light anywhere near your house. So he says, when you wake up and after you take a piss, take your dose along with your drink of water and immediately go back to scoop, to sleep. It is Another no dose? So this no, is your no, second no, dose? No, 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 you don't, no, no, you just okay. leave the one by the bedside table, right? This is, so one you leave dose. it there for this, so you don't have to go yeah. downstairs just and get it. Just make sure we don't need people overdosing on acetamine. It is crucial to not think about what you're doing. Just take the approach that you're getting up to take an aspirin or something like that. I made my mistake my first couple of times about being too excited and started thinking about stuff and it really screwed me up. I had a very unrestful half sleep filled with an unfiltered stream of thoughts and dream fragments all mixed up. I did not find this a pleasant experience. Also, it seems the lucidamine starts taking effect within five or ten minutes, so if you're not back to sleep, chances are you're fucked. That's like being on some weird antidepressant. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were in high school, we fucking sniffed some antidepressants, but he stole them from his old man. I don't know what we were thinking. But oh my it was God. not a fucking good experience. Really? No, no, it was the worst. 
Why? Well, I remember we're all just like lying around in his basement, just talking about how terrible of a decision we had made. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. took me like a day and a half to feel just feel normal. Really? Well, what did you feel like? I don't get it. Like, I don't know. Just like out of touch. Really? Yeah. Do you remember what kind it was? Like Percocet nah, or something like that? Or? It wasn't Percocet. No, wouldn't Percocet. That, is that even an anti? I don't know what that is. What's it? Candy. What's the other one I'm thinking of? It was probably that if it was back in the Prozac. 90s. Yeah. Could have been something like that. Wow. Yeah, it would have been back in like early 90s. Right around the time Bill Clinton was president. See, this is how, <laughs> this is how you know, there's so many ODs in, in America because there's so much prescription pills and such a stigma about taking drugs that people end up doing that. That's right. I mean, we used to sniff Pam when we were young. All the girls girls in school and people experience yeah experiment yeah like the fucking spray on yeah in the bag i remember smoking oregano your feet would go wet or tea someone said you could smoke tea emptied out tea bags (laughs) (laughs) really not even herbal tea i remember doing that yeah the good old days wow and sniffing Tylenol threes and shit. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go through a sniffing phase. Well, besides <laughs> Pam, <laughs> but we do our own uh, hyper, and later, hyper and later cocaine. <laughs> yeah, later, later. So uh, we did our own like uh, you call it when you deep breathe and hyperventilate and choke oh, yourself. Choke and yourself out. Yeah, I remember doing that too. And I think we got in trouble once. The sweaters. teachers found out we were doing it because oh, yeah, somebody fucking, fucking fell and passed out and we didn't get up right away. And then Scoob. everybody got all that scared. Was for us. <laughs> <laughs> that was Scoob. I remember we got caught. We were doing it underneath the tables in the back of the math class, <laughs> choking ourselves <laughs> with our with our hoodies. Oh my God. We were doing it outside, outside the portables. Yeah, so you, get, you get that feeling. You yeah. get all dizzy. Or you could do yeah. the other one where they'd push you up against the wall. Push your chest. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, probably no. even worse. All right. So, anyways, let's get back to the story here. If people are still with us, <laughs> if they can pick their jaws up. So he says it. So he says uh, it. it you got to get back to sleep quick. So he says, when falling back to sleep, it is best to lay in your back, hands at your side, slow breathing, and being still. You should only try once a week. Or I think you're basically wasting it. Although I've taken it during the day for a mental boost. Remember, galantamine—that's the uh, the main ingredient in lucidamine—was for Alzheimer's patients for mental cognition. If your LD session fails, just have patience for the next six days. It also stays in your system for about three days, so you may accidentally have an LD or definitely vivids. My effective dosage is two capsules. I've tried just one and even one point five, but never got close, except for some vivids. I'm 6'4 and 225, but I'm not sure if that plays a part in tolerance. Of course it does. He's a fucking linebacker. Yeah, but this is, this me, is a, I, I but better, it's not a body thing. It's not a painkiller or I whatever. Better it's just like, take one. it's a mental thing. Yeah, I don't know. Should I, I get, do you want to try it? We'll trade hair pills for lucidamine. I'll trade you. I don't know. <laughs> I want to get into that shit. <laughs> Sounds like trouble. Oh boy. So he says, uh, overall, just try to do those steps on autopilot. As I say, it works beautifully 80% of the time. I kind of look at lucidamine and LD practices like DMT is to meditation. It's a shortcut to getting familiar with a certain state of being. I I took a lot of experimenting, but I think it's worth it. 
He said it took a lot. It's worth it. Maybe yeah. I should try it. Feel free to ask me any questions you might have, or if you want to give me a call sometime, it's cool. That's from Matt. Thanks, Matt. And another listener called in, and I asked him for some advice, too, because he was experimenting with it. Maybe I'll give it a whirl. Dosing up in the yeah. middle of the night. Yeah. Having a lucid dream. Ooh. But save it for the weekend. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Smoking DMT sounds funner. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to a trip report from you. Yeah, one day. First, I got to dig it out of the toolbox. I was chatting with some friends that recommended not doing that, that they sh- that you should uh, just do the ayahuasca route with a shaman instead, if you want that. Not my style. Yep. Not this Indian. <laughs> <laughs> Pow. Anything else? Got time for one more, maybe, if you got something decent. No, I got some quotes here. Some quotes, yeah. some, uh... Down and gray, I'm going deep. I wanted to play the original one. What is it? That's you. All right, I got two. No, no. Yeah. Well, I played two jingles, so I guess it's appropriate. Oh, there we go. So this one's appropriate to this uh, to this episode with Charles Ortel and the Clinton Foundation. So here it is. The it UFO off. quote. He says, I think it's time to open the books on questions that have remained in the dark, on the question of government investigations of UFOs. It's time to find out what the truth really is out there. We ought to do it because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people can frankly handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. That was John Podesta, Bill Clinton, White House Chief of Staff, at a news conference October 22nd, 2004. I thought Clinton said that. No, there's other other ones from Clinton as well. Other uh, quotes from Clinton. That's one. I got another one here from uh, Wilbert Smith, good old Canadian, senior radio engineer, head of Project Magnet, Department of Transportation. The matter is the most highly classified subject in the United States government, rated even higher than the H-bomb. Flying saucers exist. Their modus operandi is unknown, but concentrated effort is being made by a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. The entire matter is considered the United States authorities to be of tremendous significance. That's from Smith Wilbert, Memorandum on Geomagnetics, November 21st, 1950. Hmm. There you have it. Good one, eh? Good. I love those old ones from the 50s. All these serious guys doing serious memos and now nobody believes none of it. None of it. And even Hillary Clinton talking about how it's been I re re identified as or reclassified as you what is it? Unidentified aerial phenomena phenomena, UAP instead of UFO. She's on it. Maybe you know what? Maybe this whole thing's gonna blow up and her out card is disclosure, full on disclosure. That's the only way she can get out of this. And she's still in a mire. Him and Bill him and Bill. <laughs> She's, Her and a, Bill. she's a man. Her and Bill are going to just p- pull the disclosure card. UFOs are real. 
we're be it'll just the media will blow up yeah. everything will blow up ufos are real and then we're ripping nobody, you off we're out of here <laughs> <laughs> nobody cares about the clinton foundation anymore because full disclosure has happened they'll be like look the rest of the countries around the world are accepting this the u.s government and the media is keeping it hidden boom boom, boom. and then she gets elected that's her trump card Okay. Yeah. Or Putin, hmm. or Putin will push it anyways. Either way, it ain't happening, man. I know. I'm just being wishful. It ain't happening. I do want that. We could do the show for twenty years, and I predict no disclosure. It'll just be a a leaky, a leaky it's disclosure a leaky, over a leaky the years. Faucet. And eventually, in twenty years, everybody will just realize that it's a reality. No, no. And the internet will be shut down when the power goes out. When we have a Carrington event, we go into the fucking John Michael Greer future. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will remember. A couple of generations, no one will remember. The safest places will be Africa and South America. That's right. We're gonna head there. Sure, I'll choose South America. You'll choose it. We're gonna go to separate ones. Well, I'm not going to go back to I've been to Africa before, oh. so go to somewhere I've never been. Fucking uh, Jackson drove to South America. Yeah, that's crazy, eh? Yeah. He's been sending me some quotes again. It's weird when you look at it on the map. It's um, it's closer than you think from Florida. I mean, from Mexico. <laughs> Which is not that close to here. So it's not, it's close. South America is closer than you think to the southernmost part of North America. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah once you get to the middle, they're really pretty close together. Yeah. Can't drive to I think Belize is right there. Right there. It's like, not that, I mean, like, not Central America, but right there. No. Right there. It is. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's crazy. It's right attached to Mexico. How long of a drive do you think it is from here to Belize? Um, 72 hours. That's insane. I'm going to say it's 44. No, 52. Go to 52. Oh, they don't even tell you. Like, you're not fucking driving, you idiot. What's the city in Belize? Well, that's what I was going to say. It's because you're Belize is a continent. Definitely not a continent. <laughs> Sixty-one hours. Oh, it's just Hawaii. That's a continent, right? Sixty-one hours. Ooh, that was close. Right in between both of us. Yeah, that's pretty weird. Fifty-one and seventy-two, and it's sixty-one. Hmm. So I was closer. Damn it. <laughs> huh? And that's you're still not even out of North America. Yes, you are. Belize is in Central America, probably. Central America is not a continent. How does that work? I didn't say it was a continent, but it's you not part of South America. No, it's part of North America. Central America? I don't know. I don't think it is. <laughs> it's not part of North but, America. But that's a good point, though. What continent does it belong in? I don't know. We're starting to ramble on here. I'm going to say it starts at, like, Colombia, South America. Which is after Panama. And after Costa Rica, which is somehow... Dude, we could get down there pretty quick. 50 foot. How many? 60 hours? That's nothing. That's like three days. Yeah. That's less than three days. 
A straight driving. Yeah. Night rider. So we get fucking shot in Mexico. Sorry, Rad, but it's a possibility. <laughs> Anything else? That's, that's it. That's it, buddy. Fucking wind her down. Jump in this chat with uh, with Charles or Tell. Tonight we have in Gray America Charles Ortel. This is going to be about uh, the Clinton Foundation. It's very interesting. So there's over a million tax exempt organizations in the states, and obviously the Clinton Foundation is one of the most popular. Charles Ortel's been investigating the legality of the foundation and its web of donors and charities, what he's calling the Clinton Charity Network. And this is way bigger than the Clintons, and it's not about the right or the left. Charles has uncovered many discrepancies with the way this foundation is set up and what's been happening to all the money. You there? Yep, we can still hear you. Charles is an Hello? investor. Can you hear us? You cut out. You, you cut out for a second. Sorry. Okay, no problem. Now, Charles is an investor and a writer interested in geopolitics, history, and economics. And he's been putting this research online for free for all to see. So thanks for coming on, Charles. It's uh, it's great. It's good timing as well. You've you've published um, your executive summary there, and uh, it's it, this thing could blow up. It's really uh, really interesting how how big this is getting. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for reaching out to me. It's an honor to be on your show, and uh, I look forward to trying to answer any questions you may have. Right on. Well, Darren, where do you want to start with this? Um, this is probably fairly uncharted territory for, uh, for I want to say, probably at least half of our audience. Um, we are fairly global, um, with about 65% being in the U.S. So, and But even them, like I know me personally, up until the last year or two when I really started getting to know Agenda and uh, listening to Stefan Molyneux and things like that is when I really started to have my doubts because... Growing up, I always thought, you know, the Clintons were just a cut above, you know, they seemed like they were <laughs> always doing the right thing. I always thought Bill was okay. He got, you know, he got that, he got tr some woman trouble there, but other than that, they seemed like they were okay people. So maybe you could just give us a rundown of um, exactly what the Clinton Foundation is supposed to be and how, sure. you, how you got involved and, and what you've discovered it turning out to be. Sure. Um, I'll give you a, a little bit of background. So um, I'm not, uh, although, you know, I appreciate the, the political ramifications here. I'm not involved in partisan politics. I was a registered Republican, but I didn't vote for John McCain in 2008. I couldn't vote for Obama. I grudgingly voted for, um, for Mitt Romney. 
but I, I'm not, you know, I'm 60 years old. I'm not somebody who uh, is a partisan Republican or a partisan Democrat. I don't think political parties do much for, for anything. So the second piece of the puzzle is that um, I, I was able to retire when I was 46 years old. And um, ever since then, um, after getting my kids off to school and college, uh, I've had the fortune to do what I wanted to do. And I was able uh, to look at lots of different things that I hadn't studied too much in college and business school and life. And around 2006, seven timeframe, really by accident, I, I was trying to figure out if I thought the market was valued fairly or not, was a crash coming. And I hit on GE by accident. And determined that GE was not what everybody thought it was. And I also determined that a crash was imminent and it wouldn't be solved by the traditional approaches of lowering interest rates and deficit spending that obviously still haven't worked. So that's what got me at first some media attention. I, I it's funny, I, I had really, uh, I was on a track where I was thinking even of maybe going off to Oxford or Cambridge and getting a PhD in history. Wow. When this, this happened, and I said, said to my kids, listen, if I, if I, you know, not having worked for five years, if I go to my friends around the world, and I have many because of what I used to do in banking and investing, um, people are either going to look at me and say, you know, you're never going to work again because you're wrong for picking on GE and all this, or you're going to be in the media. And so I was proven right. I got into the media, did a lot of stuff, commenting first about GE, then the crisis, then politics with Obama and and I have a training in international business and politics you know, as a student. Um, so I got to talk a lot about the turmoil all over the world for um, uh, a lot. I've been on Canadian television a lot, both um, BNN and then later Sun News for a while, um, and radio up there. Um, and you know, so what I like are problems that people can't seem to solve. My dad is uh, very much alive, almost 90, nuclear physicist. Um, I grew up in an environment. My mother's passed away. She's a was an expert on uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. And I grew up in an environment where, you know, problem solving and trying to solve problems nobody else could solve is sort of the way I was brought up. So somebody idly mentioned a number of couple years back that, you know, this Clinton Foundation sounded good, uh, but nobody could actually figure out really what it was. And so that just really piqued my interest. And I, and I had, although I have been on, I'm currently on one small charity board and I've been on a slightly larger charity board, I had never really assumed that as a trustee, you could get in trouble uh, working on a charity. I mean, you know, I figured you know, with a bank, you can get in trouble, a corporation, you can get in trouble, but how could you get in trouble as a chair, as a trustee? And what are the forms that you actually have to file as a trustee? So um, to my shock, actually, and, and surprise, uh, the, the, the regulatory process for charities is quite interesting. Um, and there, and it's very different than the corporate world in which I've spent so much of my time. Uh, the rules for charities in, in former colonies of Great Britain, like Canada and like the U.S., are based on ancient law. It's really Roman law that was codified in England in a statute in 1601 that um, explained how charities are supposed to work. And so there's some bedrock principles. The first is that you may not operate a charity to create private gain um, of any type, any, any substantial private gain. And that's not just monetary gain. You can't operate a charity to create an advantage for yourself, uh, an edge for yourself. And all of this is very straightforward. It's laid out in the English statute. We adopted, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff written about this. That's one of the first principles. 
The second principle is that we could not, I don't know what you guys like to do for fun, but, you know, the, the statutes are clear. Some things are charities and other things are not. So you, you get, if you want to set up a charity, and this Clinton Foundation was set up to be a presidential archive. Now, there's a specific statute down here in the U.S. Uh, that defines what a presidential archive is, and it's supposed to be a place where the books, records, and other mem memorabilia that were created during the time of the presidency, of the specific president, are housed. Those are the property in the main of the U.S. government, we the people, and they go into a building, and the building and facility and grounds are supposed to be used to study that period. It's not to study whatever a president decides is important when he wakes up in the morning. It's to study the past of that president. Mm -hmm. And that's what's set up to be in Little Rock. Now, the Canadian tradition is slightly different, and I'm being very sim simplistic here, and forgive me, those of you in Canada who are listening, but the Canadian uh, statute is more, it grows out of a slightly different tradition, and you see this in other countries, where the government up in Canada, you know, sort of frowned on these type of charities, international charities in particular, and uh, the rules are different. They're similar in the sense that if you set up a charity in Canada, you've got to, you've got to define a purpose and stick to it. You can't raise money. You can't say your charity is going to do a building for uh, an archive if you had such a system in, you know, in Calgary or anywhere else. Um, raise money for that and then spend it on skiing you know, or spend it on even helping homeless people in Toronto. You're, just, you're not allowed to do that. You've got to pick a purpose, raise money for that purpose, and accomplish that purpose. It's that simple. So that's one thing. The next thing is that um, it, down here, we have a large number of charities. We have about over a million charities. That's and the crazy. IRS is small. And the IRS is small. You know, it can't possibly regulate all these charities. So what they do is they have a system where they say, you know, to regulate these charities, you have to get, first of all, independent trustees. So a founder, Bill Clinton, and his family have to put in place a board that can stand up to the founder. They can say, no, Bill, we're not going to do that. You know, that's not consistent with, with the purpose that we were authorized for. And those trustees, have, have, they owe three duties, a duty of care, that is they have to understand the laws that apply to them and to the charity, a duty of obedience, they have to follow all the laws. They can't, a charity cannot commit in our country any illegal act, any, not one. And... That includes, you know, not filing forms on time or filing them completely. You can't do that. Uh, you stand in the shoes of government. And then you have a duty of loyalty. And that loyalty means that if you have a conflict of interest, if you own a business, uh, would be harmed by the action of the charity, you have to, A, declare to your fellow trustees that this conflict, and B, you can't vote. You can't get involved in a conflict of interest. So... These are three duties that have never been discharged properly by the Clinton Foundation. It's always been an inside board. It's never done the right thing, frankly, in following its original authorized mission. But most importantly, the IRS, unlike for individuals, does not trust charities of a very small size, like you know, 500,000 of revenue U.S. or more. You have to get an audit. You have to get a full-scale financial audit, not you know, some friend to, you know, slap together a piece of paper. There are rules. We have really, really strict rules down here about what is an audit and what isn't an audit. This Clinton Foundation has never gotten an audit, a legally compliant audit, for any year or for any part of it since October 23rd, 1997. Never, ever, ever.
How often are you supposed to get audits? Once a year. Oh, wow. So they're only like and, 20 behind. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then it gets really interesting. So down here, and, and really in, in various countries, you, I'll tell you about your law, which is interesting too. Down here we have, and the Canadian law that is, we, we have a rule that, you know, if we want to set up, uh, Americans want to set up a charity, you're not necessarily, or you may not probably get a tax deduction if you, we donate, Americans donate to a foreign charity. The way you have to do it is you have to set up typically, um, and there are some exceptions, but the way you have to set it up normally is what's called a friends of organization. You set up a company, a charity here. It's regulated according to our laws. It's controlled by our, our IRS. The rules apply to it. And then that charity turns around and donates to something in Canada or somewhere else. Now, there are over 200 countries, so you know there are a lot of variations on it, but that's the basic principle. So... Bill Clinton and his people decided to get involved operating internationally as early as 2001, but they weren't authorized to do that. They're, they're, you know, the, the record is clear. This isn't a mystery like the emails and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> with it, it's not. I mean, you have you have the charities, um, public charities that are you know like the Clinton Foundation. That while we're out doing this podcast, the Clinton Foundation is raising money on the internet, maybe on telephones, mail, this and that. The charity that's in the public domain raising money using the internet, using the mails, using telephones, it has to make sure that its filings are true and accurate and not that they don't admit any important material fact and they don't mislead. You have to do that. You're not allowed in our country and in your country to raise money when the filings are false and materially misleading. And um, so, so basically, there's a long... Uh, record here. There's a lot of public information. There's a lot of information in the public domain. And uh, the Clinton Foundation became involved soliciting money from your government, from Canadian pe- from Canadian government, from, from uh, uh, Canadian people as early as 2002, maybe earlier than that. Not having registered properly, not having had its forms pro- properly done, not having had its audits. And they then hooked up with a gentleman named Frank Justra, who is reasonably controversial, uh, around the world, styles himself as a philanthropist. But when you look closely at the records of what he has done in, in Canada and what the Clinton Foundation has done to get with him around the world, none of it's cricket. None of it's organized properly, either under Canadian law or under American law or under the other seven countries, I think, in six or seven countries where it operates. And it's not even and, like, sorry, it's not even like they're taking our tax dollars and you know, investing. investing them and helping people that, you know, it's building their mansion in DC. That's what pisses me off so much is this is, is like what you say, Charles, it's Robin Hood in reverse, right? They're really taking from the poor. It's not like a bunch of international, you know, companies and they're, they're just swapping money around. It's, it's from the bottom up really. Yeah. I mean, this, I call them merchants around misery. I mean, you know what their, their business model here is you know there's always going to be sadly a natural disaster right there's no, we're not going to i don't think no matter you know as i say my father's a very smart scientist i believe scientists are you know in the main quite smart we're not going to figure out a way to eliminate volcanoes and forest fires and floods and hurricanes it's not going to happen so there's going to be a slew of natural disasters and one of the great thing about your things your country our country uh, other countries um, where the people are wealthier, and, and frankly, some poor countries. Uh, when disaster strikes, a lot more money will flow towards 
you know, a group that says they're going to help the downtrodden than can possibly be deployed effectively. And fraudsters understand this. And so they have been doing this for a long, long time. But, you know, we used to have a charity down here that was hysterically, I mean, in some ways it was hysterically funny. And it was, I believe, either around the time Bill and Hillary were in the White House without it on their own home, um, where this, this, this fraud artists or set of fraud artists in New York would, would basically sell the right for you to put up a card table, which you're not allowed to do that in New York, but they'd sell the right to some schmuck who would then either buy or have a large glass bottle and sit there all day by a table and say, this is money for the homeless. Well, none of that money went to the homeless. You know, a portion went to the, 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 uh, the fraudsters who were setting up these card tables and a portion went to the people sitting there, but nothing went to the homeless. And that on a, you know, that was a pretty large fraud. I mean, it wasn't billions, but it was, you know, let's call it hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. A charity, as I write in the thing that's up on Zero Hedge, a charity is, in quotes, a, a perfect fraud, a vehicle for fraud, in quotes, right? Because who would believe that a former president of the United States and others around him would be committing fraud? You know, it, 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 you're just not going to go there, generally speaking. So when the people understand that no one's really going to check it, no one's going to ask, hey, why wasn't there an audit? No government's going to have the temerity outside the U.S. to say, you know, uh, we're looking through the papers here and, uh, you know, uh, I see that Bill Clinton is, you know, we don't understand how this charity is, you know, valid in your country, you know. And then uh, so then the, they get a tough lawyer to say to the people up in Canada or, you know, wherever it is, uh, France or England, you know, you just don't understand our laws. Of course, I mean, the former president, of course, they're right. And so people back down. Um, and then if you don't have an independent set of trustees, you don't have an audit. Um, the first step in the fraud is the most devilish. Um, a lot of money, you know, for example, went towards an affiliated operation, the Haiti relief uh, thing in 2010 forward. It's estimated that somewhere between 10 and 14 billion was sent towards that effort. By people in Canada, by I believe your government, by many governments, by our our government, and Bill and the former I think it is Prime Minister or a former Prime Minister of Haiti refuses to account for any of that money, hmm. and the people of Haiti you know are rioting in the streets. What do they say? And they're rioting. Well, they're furious. I mean, you know, I, I've never been to Haiti, but no, like I mean, 14, Bill, Bill, and uh, and the Prime Minister of Haiti. Yeah, like do, the, what, when they when they're oppressed on it, what do they just say? I don't know, or. They, they, they basically say we won't. I, I don't, I'm, this is a podcast, and perhaps young children will listen to it, so I don't want to tell you what they probably say. I mean, they just tell them to go pound sand. And I mean, I, it's not just the people of Haiti. I mean, the Senate of Haiti. I mean, the, the, the government, the, other than the leadership, this is the former prime minister of Haiti and the former president of the United States, you know, have this thing, the Interim Haiti Relief Commission or Recovery Commission or whatever, and they refuse to account for the money. And to put that in perspective, $14 billion, if we use that number, is 40% more than all the income that the Haitians earn of the whole 10 million Haitians, right? So you put it in a Canadian context uh, or American context, our income, let's call it $9 trillion. That would be like you know, giving or $10 trillion. It would be like giving $14 trillion one year to this country. You would expect to see maybe something might have happened. A difference. You know, that money, like <laughs> gold roads, you know, maybe, or new bombs. Yeah. <laughs> no, something, something. I mean, like you got to get something for it. And instead, what happens? 
you know, the Peter Schweitzer uh, has that movie Clinton Cash, and he writes about the fact, and others have written about the fact that Hillary Rodham Clinton's brother, I think it's Tony Rodham, or maybe Hugh, I forget which of the two of them, got a contract as a director of some startup company to mine, you know, much of the remaining gold of Haiti over on concessionary terms. I mean, how does that make any sense? I mean, how, you're supposed to go down and help these people. Instead, you're stealing their gold. And it's <coughs> shameless. What's, what's, what's a million million? Is that a trillion? A million million is indeed a trillion. So ours is 1.7 trillion. Yeah. That seems yeah. high. So I didn't know there's that much money in Canada. Yeah. <clears throat> so it'd be like getting a, tri- no. getting a trillion. It'd be like getting almost a trillion and then not, not seeing no, no. a difference. Yeah. No, no, no. If you're, if you're making 1.7 trillion, personal income would be like getting 2.8. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. Wow. So 2.8 trillion. Yeah. That is like, that's like $150,000 for every Canadian. Yeah, you and might you wouldn't yeah, I mean, see a difference. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe you wouldn't. <laughs> maybe you wouldn't, right? But, no, I mean, you ought to get a hockey rink or two for that. I mean, you ought to get something. <laughs> yeah. Right? And, and, and this is a pattern. You know, when you, when you look through the disclosures, I mean, the, the standard pattern, and I think, you know, the Clintons uh, have never really worked in the private sector. They sort of did. I mean, Hillary sort of did as a lawyer, you know, uh, in various guises. And Bill sort of did maybe as a law professor. <laughs> but, you know, they've never actually had to go out and, and you know, work in a place that has comp- real competition that provides a service or goods or both, has to try, ideally, you know, produce growing revenues, has to pay its people, has to, you know, retain top talent, has to manage difficulties, has to, you know, fend off raids. And this, they never had to do that. And um, so I don't think it's reasonable um, to believe that, you know, you would leave the White House as they did, many millions of dollars in debt for all the various scandals, which they would blame on Republicans, in which I would say, well, they probably brought some of them with them to the White House from Arkansas, which is not, when they were there, a Republican state. And, uh, you know, it was a state they controlled. Um, and uh, how then do you leave the White House with nothing, with a negative net worth, as Hillary said herself, you know, we were dead broke, and find yourself whatever it is now, 16 years later, 15 years later, worth at least a hundred million or so. Well, how do they even account? 50. How, how can they even account for this? Because, you know, even on the media, when they talk about uh, Hillary's taxes and how much they've made as a couple over the last few years, like 25 million or whatever, um, it, you know, and it's obvious that that's not all from these exorbitant speaking fees, right? I mean, some of it must be coming from, from this as well. And you mentioned at the beginning that charities can't be set up for, personal gain. Right. So you've, you've traced some of the money, right? Coming in the, which, which some, let's say countries or organizations show a donation, but the uh, incoming amount is not shown to match and, you know, to the Clinton foundation. Right. right? So, so is it safe to say then that this is getting pocketed and that's where, you know, the revenue is coming from? Like how can, how can there be such an obvious disparity? It's just amazing to me. Well, it's, it's a great point, and, and that's where they're trapped. So unlike Peter Schweitzer's pay-for-play, 
And unlike, you know, the general, when you're trying to find it, you know, is an American or a Louisiana or a New Yorkian or, uh, you know, an Ontarian politician stealing money, uh, in a charity, you have to account for every penny. Yeah. And where there are these discrepancies. So it's an interesting thing. You know, the Clintons, I don't think, ever really retained the type of talent that was then allowed to do the type of work you really need to do going back to the first day, October 23rd, 1997, to look at the full suite of filings as I have done. Not right. everyone in every country, but the important ones around the world and in this country. Um, and when you do that, uh, what you, you, you learn is that in addition to the federal forms, which is what they try to distract your attention towards, there are state forms, there are foreign forms. And as an example, here in New York, there's a story that's making the rounds today and yesterday about how, you know, it looks like the Clinton Foundation, which is very much based here, as well as in Arkansas, uh, has not filled its New York state forms right. And on those forms, you can't just aggregate all your government grants. You can't just put a line down government grants. You have to say every single one, huh. list them out. You know, Alberta gave us, you gave the Clinton Foundation seven different grants, you know, one for energy, one for climate change, one for this, one for that, each one. What was the address of the donor? What was the donor? You know, prove that it was, in fact, the government. You got to do all that for New York. You don't have to do that for the feds, but you got to do it for New York. And for the feds, uh, that is to say the IRS here, you got to list out starting in the very beginning, like they didn't fill out their form for 1997. It was a partial year. You're supposed to do that, and they didn't do it. So we don't really know what happened in 97. It was a short period. It was two, two months and a week. Um, but they didn't fill that out. Then in 98, and 98 forward to 2007, they don't fill out the aggregated total for government grant. So that's what they didn't do. But on the other hand, your government, and I've been in touch with your government, and the Norwegian government, I'm in touch with them, and the Australians I'm getting in touch with, and other governments do have these breakdowns. And big donors like the Gates Foundation, they do fill their forms out, and they do tell you year by year how much money they sent to the Clinton Foundation. And when you total up those numbers, big donors, and compare them to the disclosures that the Clinton Foundation has made year by year, that's massive discrepancy. And there shouldn't be a single discrepancy. <clears throat> You know, the basic thesis in, and I'm not an accountant, but I have some experience looking at accounts, and the basic theory that accountants have is that if you cannot keep track of your revenues, which ordinarily are the most important part of your operation, no other part of your operation is likely to be correct, because revenues are kind of important. You know, if you don't get that right, <laughs> you know, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to get your cost right. So uh, when you, there's actually, there's, and I've written about it, and you know, it's an American uh, memo, but I believe there are similar memos around the world. Accountants actually get together and write such things as the following title, Considerations of Fraud for Financial Statement Reporting. The actual title, it's not a 56-page memo, I think, that tells you what you should look for. And mistakes on revenue are, you know, a big warning sign. So, you know, getting back to where do you see the Clintons enriching themselves? I mean, Hillary, either last night or this morning, made the comment that she and Bill have never taken a salary from the Clinton Foundation. Well, that's because they didn't need to. What they were doing is taking compensation from donors. So an important donor is something called Laureate, which is a Laureate Education, which is a, a uh, an entity that's trying to go public again. That's a the largest network, global network of for-profit universities. Now, I am somebody who is 
you know, raised by people and grew up around people who take education seriously. And my starting place in thinking about any investment is to ask, you know, does the industry make sense? You know, why does it make sense to believe that you can set up a university system competing globally against the great government-supported schools and private institutions in Canada and the U.S. and England and elsewhere? Why does it make sense to believe that, you know, you can charge tuition and scalp a profit you know, and a rate of return for your investors. So you have to get something to distribute to your investors that, you know, Harvard doesn't have to do and Yale doesn't have to do and McGill doesn't have to do um, and other great schools around the world don't necessarily have to do. And you, Why does it make sense you're going to attract the best teachers, the best students? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And that's why in this country, and I'm not, I'm, I would hardly, I'm not, I'm not political, but I have been a fierce critic of, of President Obama's approach against industry um, and against capitalism. But here's an area where he and I agree. I mean, the, the Obama administration has been shutting down for-profit universities, and I think for good reason, because they prey upon the most vulnerable people among us. Immigrants, whose parents may not know that much about it. Uh, most of these, if you're poor in, in America and you're smart, you're going to get into a good school and you won't have to pay for tuition. So why would you go into debt down here when you go into debt for a student loan? I don't, uh, they may have changed the rules, but in recent, until recently, you couldn't discharge a student loan in bankruptcy. So, you know, you, to, to get, to induce vulnerable students who may not know better and their parents to go on the hook for expensive student loans at an expensive university that may or may not ever teach you anything and may or may not ever land you a job in this environment where there's so much economic and geopolitical uncertainty, I think is outrageous. And then you turn around and you say, all right, well, what we're going to do is Bill Clinton in a five-year contract in 2010, and signed around April 2010, while Hillary's still Secretary of State, pay him an average of $3.3 million for part-time work. That's a lot of money. Per year? $3.3 million per year. U.S. dollars for part-time work, not full-time, not like half a year, you know, minimal work. And I think, you know, I'm somebody, I was talking earlier on a radio station, I'm somebody who liked Ronald Reagan, liked what he had to do, but was really disappointed when he took whatever that money was from the Japanese in 1989 for speeches. I don't think a president of the United States should do that. I don't think you should be in a, I mean, if, if we're not paying our presidents enough, let's pay them some more money. Right. Maybe we give them a higher pension. But you shouldn't be out there, you know, next thing you know, what is he gonna, what's President Obama going to do next? You know, be, is he going to appear in a Cialis commercial? I mean, you know, or, <laughs> right? I mean, it's ridiculous. He's going to hawk the you know, progressive life insurance? I mean, we shouldn't have politicians at the highest levels of our country. I can't speak about what you know, other countries might do. President of the United States, as, you know, the for the moment anyway, the leader of the free world, you shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. And you shouldn't be agreeing, even if the money is really robust. And you know that money, to put that money in perspective, um, if you look through the laureate filing I mentioned, nobody at laureate for full-time work makes that kind of compensation. So what was Bill doing? And why would you pay him so much? Well, the answer to the question becomes clear. They try to take laureates leverage buyout, a bunch of, I used to do leverage buyouts, and I got nothing against them. They're done right. But um, the crew who invested the risk capital in Laureate are a bunch of billionaires and investors in the funds they manage. 
They may, they may well be, you know, I would bet, frankly, that the Canadian uh, pension funds are investors in Laureate indirectly as a bet. This is a guess. And so these are people who are expecting to make money somehow off Laureate. Well, in order to make money on an investment of that type, you have to exit it. So they tried to do that. They closed this deal August of 2007, right before the world blew up, right as the world was starting to blow up. And then five years later, which is generally longer than most of these investments are held, you try to get out two and a half, three and a half years to make your return. They announced they were going to try to go public, and they couldn't do it. The markets were unsettled, and they couldn't get the job done. So they went ahead, and somehow arms were twisted. Full story hasn't come out. And the International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank, put in $100 million directly, U.S., um, arranged for a fund managed by the IFC to put in 50 and dragged along the Korean Sovereign Wealth Fund for another 50. So 200 million went into Laureate after an IPO couldn't get completed to sort of rescue the finances of Laureate, I would argue. And when you look at this recent filing, that's just about when Laureate blew up financially. Ever since then, you know, its debts have soared to over 4 billion. Its equity at Laureate is under 500 million, according to the latest set of numbers I looked at. It has a, an ominous statement in its financial statement saying, you know, we we are not in control of our financial statements in the risk factor section around page 52 or so of the thing, and that we won't be able to fix it till 2017. Huh. Now, I would never put a penny in such an investment. The guys who put money in in the beginning, pretty smart people, you know, Goldman Sachs, Stevie Cohen, George Soros, um, Citibank Private Equity, a bunch of others, very smart people. Things trouble. All right, so you hire Bill Clinton while Hillary Secretary of State, and they juice the IFC and put some rescue capital in. Wow. That looks like a quid pro quo to me. And the people who uh, who invested in Laureate, it's not just paying Bill 17, whatever the number was, 5, 6, uh, from Laureate. In addition, the many capital suppliers, the banks, the investment firms, they all hired Bill. Some hired Hillary eventually um, and, and paid these absurd speeches. I mean, as, as Bernie Sanders was saying when he was, you know, campaigning and making sense, you know, that ought to be some speech. You know, I mean, two hundred thousand dollars, you know, for for maybe a twenty-minute speech. I mean, that are, that that better tell you how to like fly to the moon for sixteen cents. I mean, that that's a lot of money. I think somebody even for- just phoned in. <laughs> so so some yeah. so let me let me wrap my head so, around wait, this. Wait, I, I, how does how does a company that's only got Five hundred million in equity, which I guess would be in canvases and infrastructure, infrastructure mainly. How did they manage no, it, to rack up four billion in debt? Like who? Because oh, it's a Ponzi scheme, I think. See, what it is is the the basic business premise behind Laureate is you have a bunch of people, and I'm I'm sort of trying to be a bit jocular about a, a rough topic. You have a bunch of people who valued education so much that, according to the public record. They turned down the chance to go to top schools in the U.S., never went to university, and found themselves eventually in control of, of this thing and lit on the idea that they would buy derelict campuses, you know, campuses that weren't making it around the world and slap together through serial ap- acquisitions financed by debt and financed by seller paper this gigantic network that <clears throat> they would argue was a success. Now... In our country, and I think in your country, with what was that one, the Nortel, um, and you know we had uh, Global Crossing, we had Tyco, serial acquisitions financed by debt are very dangerous because you know it's really to. I used to run a large 
you know, when I was younger, a merger and acquisition department for a firm that doesn't exist anymore called Dylan Reed. And I will tell you as a professional that, you know, to get one acquisition right is tough. You get a hundred right, then that's lunacy. You're not going to get them all right because it's just very tough. And people don't sell things because they hate them. Or, I mean, because they love them. They sell them because they want out. You know, they, they, they look at it and they say, you know, uh, you know, I, I guess I'd be better off taking cash now. So anytime you're buying something, there's you ought to understand the reason people are selling it. And they slap together all these deals around the world without controls, evidently, by their own admission. And they have all these university campuses and they have, you know, the intellectual property in theory. We don't know if it's fairly valued to operate online versions of these universities everywhere. And, you know, it's a big management challenge. I mean, they got... You look at their prospectus, they got some rather funny sounding places all over the place. I mean, the, the Jordanian School Culinary Institute. I mean, the Saudi Arabian School of Beauty, you know, or something like that. I mean, there's some very funny sounding schools all over the place. Not to disparage either country, their cooking or their beauty. But, I mean, you just look at it and it's, it, it, it just doesn't, doesn't pass a basic smell test. And then another thing I learned the hard way in this type of stuff is if you're going to slap together serial acquisitions altogether, you better have one person in control. You do not want to have a situation where there's nobody in control, which is basically what is the situation with this thing. Nobody's in control of it. And, you know, so they, they, there's all sorts of other defects we could get into. But bottom line is here's a case where Bill was paid a lot of money for part-time work. And, again, I got no problem. You have, what's, who's that woman up there? Um, uh, I don't know what's her name. Celine Dion. You know, how much money does she make for having a beautiful voice? Well, I got no problem. Pay her a billion dollars. If she sells records, great. No problem. But if she's selling records, people are buying her records or whatever now, you know, the, the download. Uh, but with, with Bill, you know, $17.6 million for whatever he may have done doesn't make sense. And then in addition... You know, the banks, the investors, outside of the investment itself, turning and writing, you know, Goldman Sachs, $225,000 for this speech and that speech and another speech. You know, that's just not right. I mean, the average income in our country for the top 20%, you know, the, the, the top people, and even higher, like the top 5% or the average income per worker in the top end is, a, is less than $200,000 per worker. Yeah. For a full year, so how do how do you make how do you pay somebody two hundred two hundred twenty five thousand dollars for twenty minutes or maybe it's forty minutes you know Bill speaking forever um, when it when it's not it's not like it's a different speech it's not like he's saying you know well, here's my January sixteenth speech and I'll do something radically different I mean, it's got to be more or less the same and that's just wrong I'm I'm interested in in the unaccounted you know, funds, right? Like, it seems like a big money laundering scheme. Like, how would you ever keep track of it? So, so if, a, let me wrap my head around it. So if a, if a country or an organization donated, let's say 10 million to the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Foundation showed a receipt of like, not the full 10, like 5 million, then that other five can go through other, other organizations or to bill himself. Like how, where, what do you think happens with that? Well, you see, it's this is the stand. What I've, you know, I've had to think about this for two years almost. So because it's hard to, to prove, to I guess. Well, no. Here's the real thing. You got raised a good question. That's the second big category of potential fraud. 
The biggest one is a more is a slightly more diabolical one. So, in the case of the tsunami, as an example, the Asian tsunami back in 2005. Yeah. Um, it is estimated that as much as you know, 10 to 12 billion dollars flowed in all all at once, almost as fast as the tsunami hit. Money started pouring in. Yeah. Red Cross, this and there, Clinton Foundation, etc. So the the first trick in this disaster relief fraud is how much of the money that is sent towards the foundation actually hits the foundation. That's where the first sliver disappears, particularly if it's coming in off the internet, because mm. there are no controls on it. Right. So you imagine a simple case where a billion is sent towards a charity, and the corrupt operator says, all right, you know what? We raised $100 million. Yeah. And the other one says, wait a minute, we raised a billion. No, 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 we raised $100 million. What do you mean? I mean that you're going to get $450 million tax-free, and I'm going to get $450 million tax-free, and people are going to think we're a hero for raising $100 million. Uh-huh. You know, that's, that's, I'm not saying that's what the Clintons did, but that's the potential in a, in a charity where there are no controls. You won't know how much money actually went there, and then you start with the declared amount. So if you then want to get to the declared amounts, which may or may not be the received amount, yeah. the biggest, the biggest donor to the Clinton Foundation, unless you read my stuff carefully, I'm going to guess you don't know who it is. I did read, well, I read your, most of your stuff, but uh, I, I probably couldn't get it right. George well, Soros. Joe, no, it's the guy that's $100 no. million, isn't it? No. 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 So the total amount of declared donations oh, to the Clinton Foundation. What is it then? It's the one pro- that the UK is part of. Yes. Yes. Um, it it's, I'll give you partial credit. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> All right. So, so basically, um, the declared donations to the Clinton Foundation order of magnitude are $2 billion. Okay. Just the Clinton Foundation. And the largest donor is an entity that is based in Switzerland. It is supported by a consortium of countries, UK being an important one, France buying, being by far and away the biggest one, called Unitate, U N I T A. And Unitate has given $650 million to the Clinton Foundation. $650 million. And they've had actually reasonable, reasonable um, accounts online that lay this all out. You can, if you just Google Unit Aid, one word, Unit Aid, um, you'll get to their financial reports, their annual reports. They go on and on and on. They have board minutes and all kinds of information. And they lay for you how much money was sent by Unit Aid to an entity called the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS Initiative, Inc. And Unit Aid came together in September of 2006 as a consortium principally composed of governments, as I mentioned, France, the UK, and Canada, I don't think is a member, uh, but Korea and Spain and Norway and a bunch of small countries. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving people out, but uh, I don't mean to offend any of them, but um, that's that's who sends the money in. Now, some of that money comes off, you know, uh, bits and slivers of airline tickets and tolls and stuff like that. Some of it from the UK comes direct from the government. It's sent to a pot in Switzerland, and that pot is supposed to only go to, mostly go, like 85% or so, to the poorest of the poor in the world. Now, wouldn't you know that in the very beginning, in 2006, 7, and 8, um, over a majority of the money, according to the books and records of Unitate, the Unitate sent out of its coffers went to the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS initiative to fight AIDS with only one or two serious problems. 
The first is the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS Initiative, Inc. did not exist legally. It had been liquidated on December 31st, 2005 mm. in a transaction the Clintons tried to hide, or their cronies tried to hide, but we found all the paperwork. The second problem is that it was based, or the, the guts of this thing were based in Massachusetts and run by a guy principally called Ira Magaziner. And he's a pretty sloppy guy. So the Commonwealth in Massachusetts revoked the license of the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS initiative to operate in Massachusetts, even as money was sent by this consortium to this legal entity that didn't exist. And we're not talking small money. You know, the approximate amount of money that went into the Clinton Foundation in six, seven, and eight from this unit take round numbers three hundred million. The amount declared in their books round numbers two hundred million. Hundred million disappeared or was diverted in this time frame. What was going on in 2006, 7, and 8? Somebody was trying to get reelected as a senator, and somebody then tried to get elected as a president. That somebody needed money. So, um, you know, there's ne there's never been, you know, my experience dealing with governments asking for money and big people asking for money, they tend to be reasonably careful with their money. Who was doing the diligence on this unit tape? How come Unite, based in Switzerland, in that early period, decided to use an auditor who is the state auditor of the government of India, which has nothing much to do with Unite, and that state auditor was paid tiny money? You know, could it be that this Unite just really didn't want anybody to know that it's a bigger version of the Clinton fraud? That you know they were happy that only 100 million got diverted in this transaction because they were stealing 400 million. Yeah, And so I come at this from the standpoint of saying, listen, you know, if you're going to have rules for a charity and rules for a business, um, they probably should be enforced. And, uh, you know, it's one thing you know, the people and I do know some people like this who are very not just big with the money, but they're thoughtful with how they help. You know, when you help somebody uh, in, in a perfect world, no one knows who helped. I mean, the person who needs help doesn't really necessarily want to hear a commercial every day. You know, I help so-and-so who's flat on his butt. Without me, that person would never... I mean, that's not truly helping. You know, so great charities don't do that. You know, they help the silent hands, and they truly help. They figure it out. And, you know, this is just... And, and great charities, you know, are thoughtful in the way they spend money. I mean, why should Chelsea Clinton fly around in a private jet? I mean, last I checked, she'd never did much, you know, for taxpayers. Uh, I don't see the justification in a charity for having somebody fly in a private jet just because they're the daughter of the next president. I don't see the justification for the level of travel expenses that are seen in this thing. Um, and, and in my experience, when people, when they've done a good job on something, they like to lay it out in metrics. You know, the money came in, if the deadline is X, we're going to meet that <coughs> deadline, our, our records will be done by that deadline there's no mystery you, you would make really good point. you know you make you, know, you, you make things you know if it, you, the virtue of my own dad i mean you're sitting there a little kid trying to explain as i did in grade school what does your father do, do and this person said well my father's a lawyer and mine's a fireman mine's a policeman what's your father do dad well he's a physicist and i'm like you know, kids so oh, that's that's great what's that i'm like, i don't know you know but my <laughs> when you're in second grade or third grade but um 
my own dad has this this uh, ability to take you know a con a complex topic, whether it's super advanced math or physics or science, and explain it simply. You know that you should be able to do that. Bill Clinton should be able to do, and Hillary who wants to be president should be able to do. But their books and records are a casebook study in fraud. <laughs> so is this is this investigation led you towards um, NG, NGOs and how do how do NGOs play? a part in this or, or are they the same type of thing as a, as a charity organization? And then, uh, you know, cause it just seems like to me, like one big money laundering scheme, just transferring money back and forth. And then, you know, all the people running it get to, to walk away with the bundles. Yeah. Well, I'm hopeful. What I'm hoping is, you know, that and I saw this, I mean, I reached this conclusion a year ago. I wrote several articles, you know, and then I realized that, it would be tough to move public opinion early on because a lot of people would have assumed that Hillary was automatically going to be president. They wouldn't want to listen to this. So I spent my time, you know, making sure that I was right and checking. I actually first testing to see whether I was wrong and asking a lot of experts. Unfortunately, I know a lot of experts. You know, what am I missing? I, this is what I see. And they say, you're not missing anything. <laughs> what you're missing is, is uh, you know, is anyone ever going to care about it? And I think, you know, when you look, I don't know Canadian statistics, but I know American statistics, the bulk, you know, the people who give the most money relative to their income, and it's unfair to talk about their wealth because the bottom 80% of this country has no financial wealth. Uh, but when you look at income, the uh, people who give disproportionately as a percentage of their income to charity are the bottom 80%, not the rich. And, you know, in our country, people reach into their pockets, you know, if it's just twenty dollars that they should have saved or you know spent on food or whatever, and they hear about some sad sack case, they'll 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 ship it in you know by PayPal or elsewhere on the phone, text it, not caring about not caring about the tax deduction, but hoping that that money and assuming that that money will actually help the person. And really, I started on this because I I have a little bit more experience with numbers than than many, and I had the time. And I have the interest in, in, in the, the three related interests, managing money, finding good charities, and talking about the unique history of North America, England, which really is quite a unique history. This was an area that I thought would be you know, in, interesting and get this done, expose this, maybe write a book about it, you know, maybe get involved explaining you know, the better way to run an international charity. Um, this seemed like a good thing to do. Use this as a test test case. Now, Bill Clinton, I think, has been making an error. And, you know, he said, I think it was yesterday or today, he said that he kind of regards himself as Robin Hood. Now, evidently, he had not read my memo. Uh, and maybe he will never read it. But that was a risky thing. And then today, he followed that, that brilliant remark up by saying, you know, he's tickled pink that Donald Trump is referring to his foundation as a criminal enterprise. He thinks that's funny. Well, I don't think he's going to end up thinking it's very funny. Is that is that uh, honestly what you think? Do you think uh, because I mean, me and Graham were kind of talking about it earlier, and we just kind of think it's just like you know, like I've been I've watched all I don't know how how far you've gone down the rabbit hole on the Clintons, but I've watched quite a few things, and <clears throat> all the way back from the Mina connection and Arkansas and what was going on there, and it just seems like they're always a step ahead or or. Uh, 
a, a dirty trick ahead or whatever they do, but everything just seems to sort of bounce off them. Do you think that, that we're actually going to see some things stick here? And if so, do you think it's going to affect the Clintons directly or do they have fall guys in place? Well, I, you know, I think this is something that, um, you know, if I were in a position where I had, you know, uh, where I was more vulnerable, like I was dependent on government, uh, contracts, let's say, or a government lease or this and that, you know, I probably wouldn't be doing this, right? Because, you know, if I'm wrong and they win, you'll probably be able to refer to me as inmate 167354 and I'll be breaking, you know, I don't know, granite up in South for the rest of my life. Or you could be six feet under. I mean, you got to worry about that too sometimes. Well, yeah, but, you know, in this case, um, the flip side of it is, and, and what I figured out you know, if this had just been a case where you had to find federal crimes, I don't know how familiar you are with our Constitution, but uh, in our under our Constitution, uh, the President of the United States can only pardon federal crimes. He can't pardon state crimes, and he can't pardon foreign crimes. So when I learned that this foundation is involved in massive, in my view, state crimes, not in one state, but in most states, and in not in one foreign country, but in, say, 50 to 75, when I saw that, I said to myself, you know, you know, maybe there's a compromise at the end and, and, and uh, Bill and Hillary just you know, shut the foundation down. And they've already turned the building in Little Rock over to our records authority, the National Archives and Records Administration. So nothing really, if you think about the original purpose of the foundation, um, that will continue for the next 90 plus years. No matter, no, no, you know, doesn't matter what happens here. That's going to go. The original purpose will be fulfilled. The people in Little Rock have their complex. We can go visit and see, you know, what records will be over there, how people interpret this thing. None of that stuff's going to change. Um, so what will change, if I'm right, is, um, and I'm call, I'll call on this podcast, the Attorney General of the state of Arkansas needs to appoint a conservator to protect the valuable tax exempt franchise of this thing immediately, forthwith, right now. It has to shut, get the books and records, get access to all the bank accounts, and find out from the inside what's really going on. And then other uh, attorneys general need to say, until this is stabilized, no more fundraising in these jurisdictions. The government of Canada should say the same thing. Until, this is, until we really understand, until there's a compliant audit, until there's independent trustees, you may not raise money in my country. And then if they're operating in your country, you've got to appoint a conservator in your country. You've got to go through that process. Then we find out from the inside what's really going on. And then if there are, you know, the, the, the way this will dry up for the Clintons is rich people will look at this and say, you know, this is a bridge too far. I mean, it's not like we have Barack Obama in 2008, who was at that time, uh, in this campaign period, a very attractive candidate. I mean, he could give a great speech, or some blowhardery, or whatever the right word is. Um, and so, you know, we are the change we've been waiting for, and all that stuff. But, but in the main, he was a great candidate. You know, the campaign, everything worked well. He looked promising. That's not what we have here. You know, and I'm speaking just clinically. We're not talking about one of my favorite comedic shows. Uh, as uh, yes minister and yes prime minister, you know, the thing up in England. And one of my favorite 
meeting shows is the prime minister's uh, answer session in parliament. You know, which I don't know if you guys have ever watched that, but I mean, the English prime minister, I don't know what happens in Canada if a similar thing happens, but in England, the prime minister of England has to go to these, these unruly people mm-hmm. in the House of, in, the, in Parliament and just sit there with, you know, no notes and answer, you know, really aggressive questions. I mean, they're not like, you know, what do you intend to do for Labor Day? I mean, like, <laughs> really tough questions. And they're not pitched to the prime minister respectfully either. You know, that's, I like that. And I think the prime minister, the president of a country, should have to do that. This is a person who refuses to give a press conference, a real press conference, for nine months. You know, it's it's not like, you know, we're talking about somebody here as a superstar. Candidate. It doesn't even seem to be that, you know, into it. And uh, so, you know, I look at this and and I say, um, you know, I appreciate fully appreciated the political consequence of this. Um, but I felt that this the story about you know the the proper the good governance of charity. Remember, in our country, I think one estimate is that the the size of the not for profit sector is approximately a seventh of our economy. Wow, I'm saying ninth, the seventh is gigantic. I think our non profit sector might be as big as your economy. You know, and so there, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people in our in our economy who do wonderful things in the not for profit world. They know these rules. They have not checked the rules. They have not checked the Clinton Foundation fund. So I want to make sure they do. And let them, you know, let them tell me I'm wrong, that I've missed something, because I know I haven't. But, you know, they can try to tell me that. Yeah, but it's so much bigger than the Clintons as well. And this, like, because this is setting a precedence, right? If they get away with this and it continues to go on, I mean, who knows where it's going to go, right? I mean, people... As soon as people get in the state or whatever, they're going to be starting up these things. They're going to be, you know, laundering money all over the place. It's, it's disgusting. Exactly. And, you know, and that really is, you know, you get to, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a stick in the mud kind of person, but on questions of, you know, legality, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be just saying, you know, what does the statute say? And what's the case law? You should, you should ask yourself, you know, what's the right thing to do here? I mean, we're not talking about, you know, trying to, to earn, you know, the last buck here, Canadian or otherwise, uh, from an enterprise here. We're talking about trying to do good work. You know, she'd have people around that were really asking, you know, Bill said uh, a number of months ago, I think he said, you know, well, you know, we do more good than harm. Well, that's not what a charity is supposed to do. It's not like we're not supposed to do to be doing. Yeah. You know, and, and we can spend I mean, the most outrageous thing about this charity is for me, you know, the fact that it strayed from its purpose and that it's involved. We can leave climate change alone. If you want, well, we can talk about it, but but this whole HIV/AIDS thing, you know, Hillary is and others are going and saying, you know, these people have helped 11 million people stricken with HIV. There's no evidence of that. There's no concrete evidence of that. You know, when you look at the concrete evidence, if you, God forbid, are afflicted with HIV, what in order to remain alive, what you need is you need the medicine which is roughly 15 to 25% of the annual cost of treatment is the medicine. And then you need a doctor. You need technicians. You need people to look and make sure everyone's body is slightly different, everyone's history, medical history is slightly different. And this medicine that you take to extend your life once you have HIV is toxic stuff. I mean, it's dangerous stuff. It has side effects. And you got to make sure 
that, you know, when you hook somebody up into a treatment for HIV, that that person has access to care for the rest of their life. You can't put them in a position, you know, it's not like a, a teaser rate, you know, where you go on for one year and then guess what? You got to fend for yourself for the rest of your life. Um, when you do the simple math in their books, you know, the stuff that they control, there is only for the period 2006 2009, which is the only place I can find any breakdown of money spent on pharmaceuticals by the foundation itself, around $215 million. The annual cost of care, now there are different types of these HIV patients. Some are children, some are adults who, you know, can use what are called first-line treatments, you know, which is like sort of the first pass. If that works, you're fine. Then a, a smaller percentage are not treated well by the first-line medicines, they have to go to more expensive second-line. So you, it's unfair, really, to use a blended cost. You should know how much is children and how much is first-line and how much is second-line and, and where these are around the world. But, of course, you know it's so important that the Clinton Foundation refuses to disclose any of this information. <laughs> so, you ha- so you're left with guessing. So <clears throat> to use the math and make it really, really simple, um, let's assume that it costs $215 per year. That means that the total amount of money spent by, on drugs controlled by the foundation in their own books, never audited, of course, is enough to treat 1 million patients for one year. How could you possibly be helping 11 million people? Now, maybe you're around a process over which you had no direct responsibility that maybe helped people, but you can't say that because you're next door to a hospital or that you, you know, help the negotiating team by bringing it a sandwich that you brought the price of HIV AIDS drugs down. And when did the pro, the pro, you know, the process of bringing these drug prices down start? It didn't start in 2002, it started well before then. So, um, you know, there, there's, it's really sloppy stuff. It's actually shamefully sloppy. And there's going to be a report coming out shortly in the next two weeks, maybe even as soon as 10 days. It takes people through these, these the history and takes them through what's really going on here that what's really going on is that the clintons had something to do that is to say bill had something to do along with ira magaziner in getting associated with the process of trying to help people afflicted by hiv but it's it's not fair to say that they led the process it's not fair to say that they alone brought the price of hiv aids medicine down it's not fair to say that they made sure these hiv aids medicines were distributed um, and that they only distributed good medicine and didn't let maybe adulterated drugs into the system. It's not fair to say that they kept track of this in all these different countries. It's not fair to say that they, they made sure that nobody profited from this, that the, for example, Indian generic drug makers that were thirsting to get into this, this flow of grant money from your government and our government and other governments, that they didn't make a whole bunch of owners of these Indian generic drug medicine companies really rich. Um, so there's quite a story here. And it's, and it's a story for people who are smarter than I am and who are better acquainted with um, HIV and health and, and medical things. But it's not as advertised. And shame on Anderson Cooper and shame on CNN and shame on the people who allow this myth, you know, where there could be hard evidence. There is hard evidence this myth to be propagated that, uh, you know, this HIV AIDS thing, which was never authorized by the IRS, it's not a valid charity, it never was a valid charity. Uh, they, they're a false and fairly misleading application to try to cover it up 
September 29, 2009, President Obama, because it was such a mess. And the IRS, under at the time in that department, Lois Lerner, a controversial figure, you know, waltzed this defective application through, which never should have gotten approved. Um, you know, so it's quite a case study when you get into the details. And I welcome people to challenge me on it. I'd be happy, very happy to debate people on it. But when you engage on the facts, as I suggest in my latest memo, you know, you will be horrified by what you find. It's disgusting how the media just lets lets Hillary say whatever she wants. You know, I feel like she's she thinks she's untouchable. Like nobody's going to question it. Yeah, I know. It's and, it's brutal. And, and and I think you know again for uh, I think competition in the main you know uh, makes people better. And I think if you're gonna, it's not like people you know w- somebody woke up one morning and said Hillary, you must run for president. <laughs> you know. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. Well, it's, you've got to do this. I mean, she's been thirsting to be president of the United States for a long time. So she can't, you know, there's no pity party that's fair here. She's decided to do this. She's not making a real run for it. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not fair to go up and, you know, have scripted Potemkin-style village meetings where only your supporters are there. I mean, I've been saying for months publicly, fortunately I have a platform to do it on radio and television elsewhere, um, that what our country needs and what other countries need is a real, in our country, we had the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I think it was, I forget, it was 1858 or 1860, but we had those debates, you know, where opposing politicians, you know, you read the transcripts of these debates, it wasn't, you know, what's your favorite color? Oh, you like green and I like red. I mean, it was, it was really tough questions and really spirited back and forth in front of an audience that knew the issues. That's what we deserve. You know, have we not evolved? Since 1858, 1860, I mean, are we that coddled that we can't, as a population, a voting population, understand the issues and think about them and then place a vote for somebody, you know, on the balance of issues that are important to the voter? I mean, do we really have to be fed a bunch of propaganda? No, it's pretty brutal. And if so, you know, why have elections, you know, on the subject of global warming? And imagine how much carbon dioxide we'd save if none of these people had to travel to vote. (laughs) <laughs> and none of the politicians said to fly. And, uh, you know, imagine how much extra time we had if nobody listened to the debate. Uh, debates, and we just you know, did it by lottery. You know, somebody wakes up and you're president of the United States. Figure it out. Or whoever can raise the most money wins. <laughs> I think, no, that wouldn't be, I, it'd be, it would almost be better if it was just a lottery. It would be amusing to see if you took, you know, by, by pure chance, somebody, you know, how much worse. With somebody to by, get rich. Yeah, well, uh, forget uh, this getting rich thing seems to be really high on your on your mind. But we can park that for a second. <laughs> have you seen the movie? Uh, have you seen the movie Being There? No. no. Oh man, you guys should you get you rent the movie Being There. It's, I forget what year it was it was put together. It's about a, a comedian called Peter Sellers has passed away. A very funny guy. Um, and the plot line is that he's a gardener in a townhouse in Washington, D.C. And the owner of the townhouse dies. So he has to leave. And he has never, he's worked in a, in a gardener. Of his, his name is Chauncey. He doesn't know his last name. So he's <laughs> Chauncey the gardener. So he walks out the front door of this, this place. And he walks up to somebody in the street and he's hungry. And he says, fetch me my lunch. And that doesn't go over very well. So the person takes her handbag and hits him with a handbag. And he gets propelled into traffic. 
and the secretary of state's limousine is going along the street and nearly hits him. So they figure, well, they better, you know, the guy might sue. So they put him in the limousine, bring him back home. And this long movie is about how Chauncey Gardner is a complete idiot who gets thrust in with the president. And they ask him, you know, so Chauncey, um, how do you feel about the economy? How do you look at the economy? And he doesn't know even what an economy is. So he says, well, the economy is kind of like a garden. And what you need to do is you should water the garden. So you're in favor of fiscal stimulus, are you? You know, he doesn't know it. Anyway, so he just utters all these platitudes in the, you know, the plot line. He's, next thing you know, at the end of the movie, he'll be the next president of the United States. I mean, that's what we have here in, in Hillary. Has this taken you, like, I can just imagine in being in your shoes and you go through, like, pretty much years of this investigation. And does it not make you want to go, like, go more global and, and put all the pieces together of more of these, you know, NGOs and charities and, and, and you know, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of threads to pull on here. Well, that's what I hope to do. I mean, uh, I'm I'm gonna. I think uh, you know, we'll see how this pans out. Uh, but you know, the first thing is I want to make sure that we stop the fraud, expose the fraud, and those responsible for the fraud need to get punished one way or another. Once that is done, um, there's sort of a general interest book. You know, how did some nut decide? You know, in his spare time, <laughs> why did I do this? And, to tell the inside story of what really happened. Yeah. So I'll do that. Maybe. And then there's the more practical thing, as you rightly point out, of, of doing a textbook with a law professor. I mean, in, in touch, actually, with right, a professor right. thinking about where we, we do it. There isn't a textbook that I know of that, that says, you know, if you're going to run the U.S. charity internationally, how should that charity be structured? And what, what can you learn from, you know, what mistakes can you learn from? And how do you decide to do it correctly? And do that really thinking about the important parts of the world where you might do that. Uh, and do it first from a U.S. perspective. And as you point out, then you could do one from a Canadian perspective. You could do it from an English perspective. You can, you know, And then you do case studies. I mean, there are a lot of these. I went to Harvard Business School and I was, you know, I got through the case study method, which actually, I, I, you know, in a high, I went when I was really young. I was only 22 when I started and 24 when I finished. Um, but the case study method has a lot to recommend itself. And you could teach this by looking, you know, there's 200 countries roughly, there's probably a hundred that are in trouble that need help at minimum. And so there are a lot of stories that need to get told, both good ones and bad ones. You know, how could you make a charity more effective? What pitfalls need to worry about? Um, and so I could envisage probably doing this from a university setting in league with real professors, because, you know, I'm not a professor, and I don't want to really be a professor, though I'd be happy to talk about this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have some sort of an institute or affiliation, and, and, and you think about it rigorously. I create in a charity to do it. <laughs> right, yeah. A charity to create the no. textbook for the charities. What is, no, no, no. What I, is in your opinion, one of the up-and-up charities? I, You know, I'm somebody who does not express um, hip-shot opinions. So I, I can't answer that. Okay. I, I can't, and, and I don't want to just off the top of my head say this is good and that's good. You know, I do know, though, that smaller charities um, that do excellent work, and I do also know, you know, there are a lot of people uh, who don't do charitable work within a charity. You know, there are a lot of people, you hear these stories of, you know, servicemen We'll be sitting in a diner somewhere, wounded or whatever, and you know, order a meal next to them. They leave, and the meal's paid for. And that kind of stuff happens all day long. 
somebody, a fireman, dies, and next thing you know, there's a tuition fund for the kid. And nobody says, you know, I gave the money. That just happened. Um, so those type of acts of charity are to be commended. You don't need an organization necessarily to perform charity. Um, and I disagree with Warren Buffett on a lot of things. I mean, he doesn't particularly care that I disagree with him. But one area where I agree with him, he said that uh, dispensing charity is extremely difficult. And he's right. I mean, there's far more money interested in, in, in getting involved giving for charity than there are charities that really can do good work with that money. I mean, there's a social safety net around the world. And uh, there's a social safety net around the world. And um, governments do a lot that they didn't necessarily do even, you know, 60 years ago. We have all the government work. And... Um, uh, uh, you have all the government work, and you have, as I mentioned, you know, not-for-profits are a big slug of the total economy. Um, so it's not as if charities, um, you know, are sitting there with a blank slate that you know nobody is doing anything. A lot of people are already doing good work. So. Um, I, I would probably, you know, as I think about it, get involved showcasing those that are good, in particularly egregious examples like the Clinton Foundation. Should I find more like this, making an issue of them? And then speaking more generically about, you know, these are, you know, here's some tough issues that charities have to face. How, do you, how should you think about this? And, you know, I know having been now a trustee of two different charities, that you get asked to do this kind of stuff. And you typically by friends, people you respect, and you trust them and you know they're good people. So you don't necessarily in the beginning check it out the way you should. So giving advice to people who serve on charitable boards is something that you'd want to do, maybe in a newsletter or something or a book or speeches from time to time. <laughs> but um, that's something I'd enjoy doing. You know, I think on the, on, you know, one, one area in charity that I think is quite good there are a lot of educational charities that do fantastic work, you know, uh, that, that really do help think through and break down issues that affect the daily lives of people around the world. And, you know, the goal of these charities is to, you know, for free often, um, help you think through, you know, what it takes to be a good parent, what it takes to be a good sibling. How do you get through a divorce? Uh, what's the best way to, um, you know, run money or, um, you know, administer a charity what's the best you know there's just practical things that uh, you can break it down and there's lots of good work in those areas being done so what what about the the meat of, of what you've been releasing on your website so you've got like charlesrotel.com and you were mentioning at the beginning there that zero hedge picked up one of your um latest what would you call it? You're you're sort of releasing some of this stuff in a, in pretty good detail for people to to grab it and, and go through it on their own, right? So the approach I, I took, you know, this this is this is something where we're, what I'm trying to do, and I have some people who are helping me. We're trying to influence public opinion. So you know, I don't want to get up on top of a mountain and you know bring down some tablets and say you know here's the answer. Um, although I think I know what the answer is. Yeah. I want to engage curious minds and investigative journalists around the world yeah. to really look at. Them. And so, 
you know, it's taken me a while to get people interested. I mean, I wrote an article last year for Breitbart on March 16th, 2015, you know, with so many red flags, why isn't the IRS auditing the Clinton Foundation? And when I wrote it at first, I don't know how much experience you have looking at, you know, Facebook shares and like things like that. It got um, a fair amount of coverage. You know, for a, a, a dense topic like that, I'm not talking about Kim Kardashian or some sexy, you know, movie starlet or something like that. I'm talking about a dry topic. So you don't ordinarily get a lot of interest. But in that case, we got, in the beginning, around six or 7,000 Facebook shares when it was published, you know, around that week. Mm-hmm. Pretty respectful. And then it grew. It grew to like 20 and then 30 and 40, and now it's around 70. That's a lot. Um, and we're starting to see people really engage on it. So I've had some time now to go to the very famous investigative journalists around the world and make my case. And most of these people are like perhaps you are or I am. You know, we have plenty of ideas. We don't need new ideas. <laughs> you know, I don't want yet another thing to think about. Um, so it takes a while to get nudge these people towards actually you know, doing something. And now I've got a lot of them doing that. And now what we did, what I did in this most recent piece is I, I'm trying to provide the framework at first so that you wrap your mind about how to think about this. And if you go back to my site on April 20th, I produced something called the First Foundation Report. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and start there and read forward. There's a lot already there. And what I'm doing now is saying, all right, here are, just for the period, October 23rd, 1997, through 2011, here I'm gonna, I've laid out and summarized for you the, 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 what you will see proven. And I'm holding things back, by the way. This is not everything that I found. This is just the beginning. Uh, for 40 separate topics, all of which are defects, in the way you should report for a foundation. 40 separate areas, just for the period, October 23rd, 1997, through the end of 2011. Here are 40 separate areas where the Clinton foundations are false and materially misleading. And I take you through category by category by category. I give you the clues. And in other reports, I've explained to people, and I've been talking to a lot of people, and they know how to do this now. And I fully expect enterprising journalists will pick this trail up and start pounding story after story as I then sequentially take you through exhibit one, and exhibit two, <clears throat> exhibit three. Depending on the topic, some exhibits might be three to five pages, some will end up being 40 pages. It can take a while to go through all this. And I wasn't frankly anticipating the reaction that I got today and last, you know, really today where I found myself on the phone nonstop, several interviews. <laughs> so, you know, I, there's only so many of me and the people helping on this. It's going to take a while to get through all this uh, to see the way I'll look at it. But meanwhile, other journalists are going to start exposing stories and the pressure is going to build. And U.S. attorneys are looking at this. And the FBI field offices are looking at this. And foreign governments are looking at this. And people who might sue the Clintons are looking at this and other trustees. So we're not going to, in this case, have, you know, the kind of flippant political exercise where Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton can, you know, fill up a school, you know, a school gymnasium with paid supporters of the Clintons and then, you know, give this great speech about everything's fine. No, we're going to have some sharp people look at this. And, you know, it's possible I've made a mistake. I mean, human beings make mistakes. But uh, on this analysis, I haven't. 
No substantive mistakes. Yeah. No material mistakes. Certainly nothing approaching the mistakes that the Clintons have made. And I'm not running for president, and I have no interest in running for president or any political office. So, you know, I, I have an interest in seeing that charities are properly run. That's my interest. Well, it's good to see you getting more mainstream coverage because Dan, oh, yeah, like Dan get, and I were mentioning, busy it's going to get yeah. Because we've heard it, we've heard you on you know the new media, like some podcasts and stuff like that, and some pretty big podcasts. I mean, the No Agenda Show has been playing your clips, and they have quite a quite a listenership yeah. all over the world. I'd say a million or so. So I think that's starting to that whole thing is starting to roll roll down the hill towards the mainstream. So hopefully, hopefully you get. Yeah, it continues to happen here. And you got Trump running it down, too, so people will be Googling it. Well, we'll see. You know, I, I really want, you know, good people to really think about this. You know, uh, and it's funny what's what's happening here as well. You know, I'm not, I mean, I went to Yale College undergraduate that has um, this thing called the political union model on the Oxford political union. And uh, when I was there, I foolishly thought I might dabble in politics, so I got involved, and I was chairman of the centrist uh, you know, party there, the conservative party, and then I got married uh, a number of years afterwards, and at the wedding reception, there were like 400 people, and you know, got through the wedding, and nice reception, and then I had to shake everybody's hand, and at the end of that, I turned to my now ex-wife, and I said, I have one promise I can make to you. I will never run for political office. I mean, I couldn't make it through 400 handshakes, let alone... In what you have to do to run. So no interest whatsoever in politics. Keen interest in uh, in seeing this done correctly. And then, you know, I, I would like to see the markets correct. I think they're way overvalued. I'd like to see, you know, a, a consensus built about, you know, how we make the world safer. And with that, I'd like to live the rest of my days, you know, uh, helping people manage money, helping to think about charities, writing, speaking. And, uh, you know, telling tales about history, studying history and telling tales. You know, that's what I want to do. That sounds like fun to me. Are you getting any negative feedback? Well, you know, I'm on Twitter, so you'll get Twitter trolls. Um, and, uh, yeah, actually, it's funny. Uh, the very famous guy, Mark Cuban. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, billionaire. He somehow noticed what I'm doing. He's a big shill, apparently, for for Hillary, and so he was making all kinds of negative comments. And uh, so I I wasn't going to take that, so I said, you know, well, have you read any of this stuff? Do you know anything about charity? So he pointed me to his accountant, and uh, or to an accountant he respects, who'd written a negative comment about an article somebody else had written about my work. And so I, I spoke to that person. That, you know, Cuban pointed me to him. And I offer it, and I'll offer on your part. I will debate Mark Cuban on this issue. I'll debate anybody on this issue. Any account, anybody who's studied this, I'd be happy. I'm not going to debate, you know, somebody who doesn't care about the rules and just thinks, you know, the president ought to be able to get get away with whatever a president wants to do. That's not. Uh, last time I checked, I didn't wake up in anarchy. <laughs> we have some rules, so you know. Uh, but I'll happily debate any of those people. And of course, I mean, you know, Hillary has got a lot to lose if she does not win, beyond just losing, as do the Clintons. So, of course, you know, I, people will be critical. You know, I don't mind constructive criticism. That's fine. But you know, hating comments, I don't. I don't listen to that. I kind of, um, 
You know, we kind of touched on it earlier jokingly, but I, I got to ask you seriously, do you have, did, have you had any fleeting concerns for, for yourself? Like, I mean, I, a lot of it's conspiracy, but the it does seem to, to, to follow the thing that people that fuck with the Clintons tend to have problems. Right. Like stay away from Language. hot tubs and bench presses and small aircraft. Right. So, so, you know, what we're talking about here, again, I'm not interested in politics. I'm not running for office. I'm, you know, I'm interested in charity. And actually there are what are called whistleblower protections for charities. Um, I cannot stop crazies. But um, the one thing I did, because I care about this being fixed, is the truth that I see about this charity is in the hands of many, many people around the world. Yeah, yeah. This will get exposed. Yeah. No matter what. And that was my um, next question. <laughs> you know, so, so I certainly was not that stupid. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we're talking about a charity here after all. You know, I remember uh, myself when I was younger playing tennis, you know, and, and I liked it and I was so, so at it and, you know, pretty competitive at it. And then you get to a point where, you know, you're getting upset with yourself and, you know, whatever. And then you got to remember tennis is a game. You know, charity is... It's, we're not talking here about fighting a war. You know, we're not, we're not talking about death-defying stuff. I and mean, we were talking about trying to do good works, and only good works, not more good than harm. So, um, yeah, I'm gang-tackling them on, on charity because they screwed up big time. You know, this is, this is unacceptable. This is deplorable conduct, despicable conduct. And I'll happily say that. And I don't care what they have to say about it. I care about the facts. That's why you'll notice this uh, particular uh, issue is concentrating upon Clinton Foundation facts. Let's talk about some facts. Show me an audit. Show the world a true consolidated financial audit for any year. They can't do that. My my gut says if, if Clinton wins the election, then it all goes away. And if, if she doesn't, then she goes to jail. Yeah, or loses everything, you know, or loses a lot financially. Um, you know, the way I, you know, handicap it, and again, I'm not a political expert. I mean, we've got to get from today, you know, past September 11th. Um, let's hope nothing happens. Um, we've got to get through, you know, the big banks are now starting to say this is reminiscent of 2008. You know, could there be another financial crash? We've got to get through, a, you know, between now and the election, if there's a financial crash, and or geopolitical instability, Hillary loses. Forgetting whether or not there are problems with the foundation, she loses. So to think that she's going to win, you have to believe that there's, you know, peace between now and then. You have to believe that the markets will stabilize or rise. And then you also have to believe that Julian Assange is faking it. He has Bluffing, nothing. Yeah. You have to believe that no foreign security service has anything. You have to believe that no disgruntled members of the FBI have anything. You also have to believe that Hillary is a strong performer on the campaign trail between now and then. Now, name one strong performer. One. And in Trump, you know, if Hillary were running against the, you know, Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush, I'd be more nervous. But, you know, Trump is so unpredictable. And you're starting to see the never Trumpers who get on his side. Um, I hang out here in Manhattan in some surprising places. Uh, 
you know, on purpose, um, where, you know, simple restaurants and stuff where people see me there regularly and they now start talking to me and stuff. And, you know, poor African-American, Hispanic people, you know, are pro-Trump, some of them, much more than you think. Yeah. So, and, and I would, you know, you probably were not all that, maybe you weren't all that active back in 1980, but, uh, you know, conceived. <laughs> this tried to be nice. But anyway, back in 1980, you know, I was, uh, let's think, I was 24. And uh, I remember uh, not necessarily being that enthused of Mr. Reagan in the beginning. And I remember, because I checked it, that around this time in 1980, Carter, for all the problems of Jimmy Carter and the economy back then, and, you know, we had hostages a long time, humiliated in Iran. We were getting humiliated right and left. Jimmy Carter was even with Reagan in September of 1980, from memory. And Reagan opened up a serious can, as Adam Sadler says in his movies, of whoop-ass <laughs> on Carter. I mean, it was a serious can. Uh, and, you know, in, in the, the picture changed a lot in 60 days. And here we have, you know, Hillary, somebody who spent a tremendous amount of money on traditional advertising, not moving the needle. Not moving the needle. And so anyway, I, looking at all this, um, I'm, I, I like my chances right now because, again, I'm focused on charity. And, and you know, if, if I'm wrong, I'll accept it. If I'm right, they need to accept it. Right on. Well, geez, I, I, I don't know who I'm rooting for. <laughs> Let's stay out of it, Darren. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I mean between him and Hillary. Um, yeah, not between the Donald and Hillary. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, we urge everybody to to check out your website, CharlesOrtel.com, full of full of information. You've got all those reports there. And thank uh, you. And I'm on Twitter at Charles Ortel. And I do try to do, like right now I'm sort of chock-a-block with interviews and things and having to write. But I do try to take the time people reach out to me. You know, not nasty people I tend to block right away. But um, people have a question or whatever, and if I have the time, I try to answer it. I try to put thoughtful stuff up there. I actually relish the interchange. Uh, people who have leads and send them to me, I, you know, I communicate with them and get them to email me. Um, I view this as a cooperative process. You know, I'm just part of a team. Yeah, well, we can tell how freely you put your, your stuff out on the site, and you can tell you're not, you know, you're not in it for for the money. So it's uh, it's visible. Thanks so much yeah. for coming on, Charles. Really, really appreciate your time. All right, for any time, thanks for having me on. Stay in touch, and all the best to you. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And, and stay off a of small aircraft. All right. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Clear? Clear. That was our chat with Charles Hotel. A little more political than usual around here. But uh, I think the timing is good. It's a good time to get into it. You know, the more I go down the Clinton rabbit hole, the more appalled... <laughs> It becomes. Yeah, it's crazy. It's disgusting. Yeah, like, we're crazy mobsters. Like, even the Clinton Cash thing, I watched that, and 
And even if it's not all true, like even if half one, of it's if, like half even, true, it's even, just brutal. Even if half of half is true. It's just disgusting. Like it's, uh, but, but you know, to think that that's, that's kind of open, like for some reason it's out there for people to investigate. Like they don't do a very good job at hiding it. Like they, I don't even think they realize that they, they just think they're untouchable. Like nobody's going to do anything to them. Like he was president. She was secretary of state. Like that's it. That's it. That, nothing can happen. They're fucking bulletproof. It's disgusting. Yeah. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Really? What's visible? What's not visible? What's hidden? What's in the back room? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's uh it's despicable. And 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 how long is this like with all this attention that he's getting in the new media and all like what's uh, it's going to be a really interesting couple months here. I don't think he's taking my advice to stay off a small aircraft seriously enough. No. I was going to the Clinton body well, count. You went down the, the the it's rabbit like hole. over 90. And they're all like one guy overdosed on mouthwash and somehow crushed his throat. Was he on the bench press at the same time if no. his throat was crushed? And then there was a suicide in the back of the head. Lots of suicides? <laughs> yeah, some chick in Arkansas was pregnant and saying it was his kid. Suicided herself in the back of the head. Wow, yeah. I mean, we, I don't even want to address this because I don't want to give turtles any, any bad, you know, no, bad yeah. vibes or anything, like throw out any kind of negative stuff, but wow. It's scary. I commend him. He's doing important work. Yeah. And maybe it won't matter because those motherfuckers will be in jail by Christmas. Could you imagine? It's he's he's brave to come on here, man. He's probably gonna get some flack. Oh, look at this guy. I mean going on talk shows about paranormal and conspiracy shows. Yeah, well <laughs> it's it's gathering steam. It's gathering steam. Yeah. So I guess we'll see where we are in sixty days. Yeah. I don't I don't think she's got a chance in hell anyway. Really, eh? I think I think the Clintons are going down, crashing burden. Well, wasn't there a bunch more emails too about Benghazi coming to, up yeah. and and like the and then the email fiascos going crazy? And the more you hear about that, it's just it's just she's so stupid about how she handled all that. And what and Assange still says he's got stuff that'll put her in jail. All the devices and the the like the different uh, like I was listening to that one where the laptops were mailed places like somebody created a gmail account to like upload all her stuff to put it on a stick like you're telling me that her <laughs> emails are in, in gmail and on laptops that didn't arrive at the destination and it's all the information is safe yeah, and they just threw out her old they just hammer it with a hammer <laughs> and her, throw my, the... her mat her email server was an old mac mini <laughs> <laughs> oh they were done they just threw it out because you can picture her not wanting to comply with like the government stuff. I don't want the government. I want to keep it all together. And you know, why do you think she wants to keep her own email? Right. Cause she wants to fucking get all this stuff through the Clinton foundation. Right. Uh, it's just, it's my, it's mind blowing. She's totally out of touch. Yeah. With reality completely. Guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. The plot thickens. So help us keep uh, exploring these sort of topics and stay an ad sponsor, affiliate, and bullshit free, other than Graham's bullshit, and support yeah, the show. Yeah, no, it's true though. Hey, eh? like we can't, we couldn't do this if we had ads and stuff. Ads would imagine if we started getting political uh, and fucking would, ads. Would Squarespace be like, would dump us in a second. Yeah, you should bleep that out. Oh yeah, I gotta quit saying. Fuck, I'll call it fuck space.
We haven't said something. it a lot. No, I know, but someone said someone actually emailed me and said, you know, every time you bitch about other people's yeah. Squarespace ads are actually You're actually advertising Squarespace. <laughs> so anyway, check out grammerica.ca slash support. Uh, a bunch of different options there on how you can help us uh, keep uh, plowing forward. Sign up for a monthly, uh, everything from a buck to 30 bucks a month, um, all of which would be less than the price of a cup of coffee a day. And uh, Or a one-time donation, uh, check out grammarica.ca slash swag or donate. Are we just going to keep the shirts for local after these last couple? No, there, I was going to do an inventory for you, but there's at least like probably three or four large and three or four extra large of the traditional Moai one, and there's a few like don't shoot or take the shots take the in shots. there as well. I so, I mean, I'd rather just get rid of those. Like, that, okay. we need to kind of cash out. I've put money into making those, right? And we don't make a lot on them, so it would just be nice to cover expenses yeah, I think, sooner than later. Yeah, so that's grammarica.ca slash support. Maybe if you're planning on donating and you, just for the sole purpose of a T-shirt, just shoot an email first to make sure we have, because we're not reordering. So if we don't have your size in stock, let us know. Right, good point. You shoot us an email if you want a shirt, uh, and let us know, because if not, we'll redirect you over to the new store, which uh, will have whatever size you need. Yeah. I actually ordered a couple uh, for the kids. Nice. Just says Grey American. I, did, I didn't find the doobie smoking appropriate for the children, so I just got some... Uh, some babies that just say Grand American on them. Yeah, even if it wasn't a doobie, it's just still not even smoking. Yeah, it's just not appropriate. Fuck me. Imagine that. That's probably worse. Probably get your kids That's probably worse. Away. <laughs> it's a cigarette. That's yeah. worse. Yeah, oh, fuck. They'll come and get me. So, yeah, check out all that shit. Spam, gram. Sign up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca slash news. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. All right, you motherfuckers. Thanks for listening, and we will oh. see you next week. And I was wondering, uh, I was wondering, I was wondering, would you like some socks? Oh, sex on the floor. Sex on the floor, sex on the floor.
Cause I'm still wondering, uh, I'm still wondering, uh, I'm still wondering, would you like some socks?